Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Growing older has its pluses. The biggest one, retirement. Is there a trip you dream about taking after that house gets paid off and the kids finish college? Senior citizen status can mean freedom to make those plans, but aging has its drawbacks. Who doesn't fear declining health and memory loss? Today we hear about the latest brain research to keep our minds sharp. Neuroscientists say it's not something you have to wait to do until after you're 65. And later we'll hear how astronauts' brains change during spaceflight. But first, citizens from seven Muslim-majority nations are free to enter the U.S. after a federal appeals court on Thursday rejected a request by the Trump administration to reinstate his travel ban, which included a halt to the refugee resettlement program. Now, to help us better understand that federal appeals court ruling, we're joined now by William Dunlap. He teaches constitutional and national security law at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Bill, welcome to the show. So thanks very much. So we all know the president's reaction to that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision. In a tweet, he wrote, see you in court. The security of our nation is at stake. Can you explain to us um, the, the reasoning behind the appeals court decision uh, to not remove the stay on that executive order? Yeah, it, it's very difficult when you're talking about this whole issue uh, to separate the policy issues from legal issues. And even when you do focus on the legal issues, it's just as hard to separate the constitutionality of what the president did uh, from the question of the court's power to issue this temporary restraining order. A lot of people have criticized the executive order for being counterproductive because it focuses on the wrong countries or because it will inflame people around the world against the United States. But from the other side, it's been criticized as not going far enough because it affects only seven of almost 50 uh, majority Muslim countries around the world. But these are policy questions that are generally left to Congress and that the court's not going to decide, even if this thing goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the question before the court now is different. I mean, in the unlikely event that this uh, goes that far, the courts may ultimately have to decide whether the president has the power to issue an order like this. Uh, whether the due process clause or the establishment clause of the Constitution prohibit him from exercising the power in the way he did. But the question before these courts has been, uh, and which the Ninth Circuit answered last week, as you said, uh, could go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. But it's a very narrow issue as to whether Judge Robart's temporary restraining order should be allowed to stand. And it doesn't have much to do with those policy questions. So in that Thursday decision, the court faulted uh, the federal government for failing to present evidence that this ban was needed for national security? Uh, yes. When the state of Washington went into court to seek an injunction and a temporary restraining order, it had to prove that it was likely to prevail on the merits if this actually went to trial, and they had to show irreparable harm. But once they got that restraining order and the government appealed, it was now 
a burden on the government to establish that it would be likely to prevail on the merits, and it had to show irreparable harm. And the court said that even though there are arguments out here that this could uh, present uh, irreparable harm to national security, that the government simply had not met its burden of providing that evidence. And so the other options, they could appeal this again? Uh, yes, they they could apply, and I understand they have already applied for what's called an en banc hearing before the Ninth Circuit. That would have all 25 active judges on the Ninth Circuit hearing the case again and making a decision. Or they could go directly to the United States Supreme Court, uh, or they could go back to the federal district court and continue litigating the question of the injunction, or they could go back to the federal district court and try to litigate the merits of the case. So there's lots of different options. It's unclear yet what uh, the Trump administration will do. We are hearing reports that he has said, and uh, we played a clip uh, aboard uh, Air Force One uh, late last week, that um, he's mulling over a new executive order. And so I'm curious if we could just back up a little and talk about um, what the president's power truly is. Um, his administration says he has the power to say who can and cannot come into this country, and that should be held up by the courts. So can we talk a little bit about that power specifically? Sure. Let me just say quickly that if he does go back and issue a new executive order, that would probably be the best possible result in this case, because there are obviously national security issues involved here, but there are fairly obvious problems with the way this original order was carried out. And so the best course might be just to drop this order, get the case out of court, and start over again with a new executive order. But where's the president uh, get the power to do that? Two ways, actually. Everything the president does has to be, um, sorry about this. Uh, everything that the president does has to be traced back to uh, the United States Constitution one way or the other. And the president has significant authority under the Constitution as the commander in chief and as the chief executive of the United States. Uh, to help protect the security of the United States. But more specifically, the Constitution gives Congress enormous power over immigration, and Congress has delegated that authority to the president, uh, saying that he can identify classes of persons who, for national security reasons, should be excluded from the United States. And the issue here is not so much whether the president has the power to do that, but whether the way he did it violates the Establishment Clause or violates the Due Process Clause by excluding people, particularly permanent residents of the United States, from the United States without giving them a chance to uh, have a hearing or an appeal. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with William Dunlap, who teaches constitutional and national security law at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Uh, we're talking about that recent decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals late last week uh, that refused to reinstate this travel ban by uh, President Trump. Um, he is now uh, indicating that he will be um, possibly announcing a new um, executive order that may relate to immigration. Um, so, uh, William, you mentioned that that would probably be the best option uh, for the president. What would need to be in that order where there wouldn't be a, a question of constitutionality? Well, the most obvious problem uh, <clears throat> with the uh, order as it was originally issued is that by its language, 
it prevents permanent resident aliens of the United States, people who are living here permanently and legally on green cards, prevents them from coming back into the United States and did not provide any sort of remedy for them, such as a hearing, an opportunity to explain. The fact that they are permanent resident aliens means they have already been through the sort of screening that this executive order was designed to put in place. And those people clearly have constitutional rights. So if the new executive order resolves that problem by making it clear that it does not apply to permanent residents of the United States and perhaps some other groups as well, it could avoid most of the uh, serious problems it's already facing. And before we let you go, William, you know, again, uh, we, there may be the option that this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. Is that likely? Would that be in the best interest when we look at that um, eight justice panel? It's really hard to know whether the government would want to appeal to the United States Supreme Court or not. Uh, sometimes it's a really good idea uh, to get a definitive ruling on a particular issue. But when we're talking here about a constant tension that will go on, it's, it's gone on since President Washington, and it will go on forever, a constant tension between the president and Congress and the courts, uh, it's not entirely clear that an absolutely clear ruling would be a good idea. We have a very flexible system of separation of powers and checks and balances. And the court has said in many cases, when it has refused to step into controversial issues, that it's better if the political branches of Congress and the president can work these things out for itself or for themselves and not to have the courts get involved. I've been speaking to William Dunlap. Again, he teaches constitutional and national security law at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Um, William Dunlap, thanks so much for answering some of our questions on this decision. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're shifting now from current events to talk about the brain. Actually, the brain of so-called super-ages. Super-agers, rather. Who are they? Well, joining us by phone now is Dr. Alexandra Turutoglu. She's instructor in neurology at Harvard Medical School. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So you have a new study, um, you and your co-authors, published in the Journal of Neuroscience that's looking at super-agers. Tell us about uh, these individuals. Yeah, well, uh, super-agers um, is a term coined by... Emily Rogalski and colleagues at Northwestern University in Illinois. And um, so the term describes those older adults whose uh, memory and attention isn't merely above average for their age, but it's actually uh, similar to what uh, healthy young, um, older, uh, young adults have. Um, in our research study, uh, in collaboration with Brad Dickerson, a neurologist at Mass General and associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and Lisa Thelma Barrett, distinguished uh, professor at Northeastern, we gave uh, our older participants a memory test that involved memorizing a list of 16 words and then asking them to repeat them uh, 20 minutes later. Most older adults will remember between eight and 10 of these words after a delay. But our young adults um, remember about 13 or 16, all the, all the words. And so that's what our superators did. Our superators remember 13 or more words similarly to what the, our young adults did. And so 
the super aders perform like young adults. They have youthful memory capacities. So when we're looking at the brain of a superager, tell us about what's, what is different about uh, their brain versus um, some other older adults. Yeah, so that, this is what is uh, really interesting. Um, we used um, fractional magnetic resonance imaging, which is um, a technique that measures the structure and the function of the brain. You could put people in the scanner and you measure this. Uh, and so we compared the brains of 17 superagers and um, 21 typical older adults. We found that um, regions in uh, older adults, regions that are involved in memory uh, and attention, were thinner than those regions uh, of the superagers. So superagers did not have this age-related um, atrophy, which is normal, and they seem to be untouched by um, the ravages of time. Um, those regions that are important for memory and attention had the same thickness uh, with that of young brains. And the interesting thing is that it was not only regions that were related to memory and attention that were thicker, preserved in superators. There were also regions that are important for emotion. And um, this was uh, not surprising to our lab because we really think that emotion and cognition interact and both are needed for complicated, complex processes such as memory and um, uh, problem thinking about thinking or solving uh, complicated problems. Um, but um, it is surprising to see that those regions um, are involved in emotion and motivation and are those regions that help uh, superagers perform better in a memory task. Actually, Lisa Feldman-Bader has a book that uh, discusses about those regions in more detail, a book that's coming out in March, uh, How Emotions Are Made. So we'll make sure that we tweet out mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. that book uh, to our listeners. Yeah. Um, so again, we're talking about superagers. So there's mm -hmm. a, sp a specific group of older adults whose yeah. uh, regions or networks in the brain um, do not shrink, and their memories are similar to those people in their 20s and 30s. So the big question is for for all of us is, you know, how do we become superagers? Is superagers is that possible? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Can you make a person a superager, or are you born with it? And actually, does it really make a difference in real life? So uh, we hope there might be not just genetic factors that make people resilient, but also things that uh, people can do themselves, such as uh, physical fitness, uh, diet, or education. We didn't collect information on the activities um, performed by superagers in daily life, uh, so we don't really know what their activities are. But uh, this is something that we definitely intend to pursue in um, uh, follow-up studies. Mm. But we do know that the regions that were that show preserved um, anatomy in superages have been associated, as I said before, with not only memory and attention, uh, but also with motivation, with exerting effort. So it is reasonable to assume that. Um, Superagers are those older adults that are better neurally equipped for sustained effort mm -hmm. than their peers. So you're up in uh, Boston. When I think of a, I'm, I don't know if this is correct, but when I when I hear reports that you have uh, someone who's over 80 running the Boston Marathon, could they be considered a superager? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there are many. Um, so. 
I, I think of super agers, uh, older adults that uh, not only have good memory, but also older adults that, uh, you know, have increased motivation to perform a task. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the brain, uh, more uh, brain science that shows that just because you're turning older doesn't mean that you're going to be uh, predisposed to memory loss. And we wanted to find out more about what scientists are learning these days. Joining the conversation now is Dr. Emily Rogalski. She's a neuroscientist at the Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Center at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So your uh, university actually coined the term superager. Can you talk about the study that was done at Northwestern and how the definition has changed or maybe similar to Alexander and her colleagues at, at Harvard? Absolutely. So we, um, we started out with this theoretical idea, which was really important because um, it wasn't so long ago that we thought that everyone, um, we just were going to get older and we'll age and um, there's nothing to do but go downhill. Our memory is going to get worse, other things associated with aging, um, all of the news is bad. And then when you look at that on an individual level, you see that that's not exactly true, that while on average memory may decline over the decades, um, there are individual people who seem to defy that norm. And so those were the types of individuals we were interested in. And so we started this with a theoretical idea, and then we operationalized it. And we operationalized it by saying, okay, what do we know about aging? We know that as you age, um, your risk for Alzheimer's disease and, and memory loss get um, exponentially increase with age. And so we wanted to identify people who were at the greatest risk and see if they could, um, we could identify people who avoided that memory, that change in memory loss. So we, we wanted people who uh, met the following criteria, people who were over age 80. Um, and then they had to have memory at least as good as those in their 50s and 60s. So memory better, um, at least as good as individuals who are 20 to 30 years younger than them. And then we gave them a challenging memory test um, to establish this performance. And since then, we've been following those individuals longitudinally to better understand uh, the biological factors that might contribute to superaging. And so there's common characteristics within this group. Is it, are they more active? Is it certain things that they may eat, um, what their family history is? Absolutely. These are the types of factors that we're interested in. And we actually started um, similarly to the Harvard group by looking at the brain. Um, being a neuroscientist in a, a, a cognitive neurology and Alzheimer's disease center, we're centered in um, understanding brain function and uh, how that contributes to aging. And the first thing that we did is we said, okay, if we have a group of 80-year-olds um, who have memory at least as good as 50-year-olds, do their brains look more like 50-year-old brains or more like the 80-year-old brains that they share age with? And what we found, which um, was that the superager brains, uh, the outer uh, layer of the brain, which is called the cortex, you can kind of think of it like the bark on a tree. Um, that's where the brain cells live. And we found, found that that ou outer layer of the brain was just as thick in superagers as it was in the 50-year-olds. So individuals who had um, who were 30 years less in age shared a similar level of thickness across the cortex of the brain, that outer layer. And then we found a region um, called the anterior cingulate, which is deep in the brain, um, uh, which is a similar region that was uh, confirmed in the report by the Harvard colleagues, um, was thicker in our superagers compared to the 50-year-olds. And since then, we've 
uh, gone on to look at uh, the histopathologic features, so looking under the microscope to better understand the features of this region in superagers. And we found, again, uh, interesting things there. Something called von Economo neurons seem to be more abundant in superagers than normal agers. We're interested in genetic factors, uh, but also lifestyle factors, family history, and education. When we look at things like um, family history, we see a little bit of a mixture. There are some people who, ha who have longevity in their family and others who don't. We have um, some who have a history of dementia in their family and others who don't. As far as diet, um, again, there we have some people who um, may have been uh, vegetarians their whole life and others who really like their hamburgers and french fries. Now, you had mentioned you know, there's some certain characteristics, but what about are, are women more likely to be superagers than men when you look at um, lifespan? I think that's a really interesting question. In our cohort, we're not doing an epidemiologic study, so we can't say for sure that the prevalence of superagers is greater in women than men. We have more, uh, we've identified more superager women in our cohort than men, but this may be due to a couple different reasons. One, because women live a little bit longer, but maybe more importantly, women tend to volunteer more for research studies than men. So it's a little bit unclear where that bias in more women than men is coming from in our cohort. Mm. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, today we're speaking about the brain and, and studies that show that older adults, uh, so-called superagers, actually have uh, brains similar uh, to those of, of younger people, 20s, 30s, and 40s. On the phone with me is Dr. Alexander Turutoglu, instructor in neurology at Harvard Medical School. Also, Dr. Emily Rogalski, neuroscientist at the Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Center at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Now, I wanted to just go back to something that um, Emily had said, Alexandra, about when they're studying uh, these the group that was in the original study uh, at Northwestern and looking at the characteristic characteristics, she said something about how some people um, have uh, dementia in their families. And I thought that was kind of interesting because um, for for those of us, my mother has uh, dementia, um, people I know who have uh, parents with Alzheimer's, you know, that is a fear that many of us have that, you know, we are more uh, likely to get uh, this disease as well. And so I think it's kind of interesting and maybe a, a, a ray of hope for people when they hear that just because it's in your family doesn't mean that you're more likely, you're, I'm sorry, that you'll we will get also dementia. What would you tell people? Um, who are hearing this interview and, and reading your uh, recent study about um, you know, how they should view uh, aging uh, with this family history? I would say um, I don't, uh, so we don't really know what causes uh, superaging, what causes uh, individuals to uh, age uh, better than others. But um, so there's, so, um, so a lot of research needs to be done here, but uh, definitely it's not about genetic factors alone or um, lifestyle factors alone. So it's definitely an interaction between between those two, and um, it doesn't matter if um, uh, if if your family um, is um, is at the risk of Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't matter if uh, uh, your parents, for example, are um, have not had the chance to get educated. What it matters is uh, how do you approach life and how uh, what do you do um, as you age. 
Dr. Alexander Turutoglu, again, instructor at neurology at Harvard Medical School. She's one of several investigators at Massachusetts General Hospital who studied superagers, or a group of older adults whose memory performance is equivalent to that of younger individuals. They found that certain key areas of the brain resemble those of young people. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, coming up, we want to find out, do brain games actually help? What are some tips to promote creativity and sharpness later in life? We're going to find out more after the break. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the brain today. In the last segment, we learned about superagers. Researchers have found this group of older adults have brains as sharp as some 25-year-olds. Is this something everyone can work on to stave off memory loss as we age? And is it something you've wondered about? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, on the phone with us again is Dr. Emily Rogalski. Uh, Rogal- neuroscientist at the Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Center at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Now, Emily, um, you know, we've heard just recently in the last few years that brain games, you know, those crossword puzzles, Sudoku, um, are a great way to help improve memory. And we're wondering, is that really true? Well, I think that's kind of a complex question, but if we think about it, the idea of keeping your brain mentally active is, of course, a good thing. So we uh, spend a lot of time and money going to gyms to keep our bodies active and um, physically fit, and it's important to do the same thing for the brain. Now, is there any one magic bullet crossword puzzle that I should be doing that guarantees that I'm not going to get Alzheimer's disease? Unfortunately, the answer is no there. but does that mean I should never do crossword puzzles? Well, the answer there may be it, it depends. Do I like crossword puzzles? Do I think that they're challenging? Um, if I do, then great. If I really hate crossword puzzles and they provide me with anxiety every time I even look with one, then any gains that I might get from working on one are, are going to be diminished by this anxiety that is provoked by just looking at that page. We're hearing often that exercise is key. Um, what about you when know, we hear when we talk about um, the elderly and the importance of people not being isolated? So socialization um, as you age, you know, staying in touch with people around you, and how much of that impact has on someone? Certainly, there's very um, there's wonderful evidence suggesting that social isolation is is very unhealthy for our brains, and that um, it's important to maintain social contacts, even um, for those individuals who have a diagnosis of dementia, that you can um, improve quality of life and uh, mood by staying socially active with others. And social social isolation is a is a major challenge for um, aging individuals and those who are experiencing memory loss. And again, you're a neuroscientist, so for our listeners, you know, what would you uh, recommend people do, again, to keep their minds as sharp as possible? I think that we're still learning kind of the optimal recipe of, you know, what things are helping the best, but um, the general adage that a heart-healthy diet is a brain-healthy diet is a good one. Keeping your um, body physically active 
um, in a safe way is important. And then keeping your mind uh, mentally sharp is, is important too. So find activities that you like and that are challenging um, and work. try to include others in those activities. And does it matter, um, again, when we're at, you know, after 65, people may think, okay, now I got to start doing all this stuff. But maybe if you're in your 40s, you know, how you can help, what kind of things you could be doing uh, to, again, help you as you age? Yeah, it certainly doesn't start, hurt to start early. So um, I think developing good habits are things that will help you sustain them longer in life. So the um, identifying these good habits early and maintaining them over time is important. But at the same time, it's never too late to start a good habit, too. Now, are there, there are programs that actually cater to older adults. In studio with me now is Jonathan Draper, Interim Director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, known as OLLI, at the University of Connecticut. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. So for many of us who haven't heard about OLLI, tell us what this is. Yeah, so the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UConn-Waterbury is a network of 119 Osher Institutes nationwide, and their programs for adult learners age 15 older, 15 over, who want to take non-credit classes purely for the joy of it. There's no tests, no quizzes, uh, no homework. It's really just about building a learning community among your peers, uh, other fellow adult learners with similar interests, um, who really just want to take classes to sharpen their minds. Um, and I, th- I couldn't help but when I was listening to the previous conversation, um, just thinking that I'm sure we have plenty of super agers among our membership, um, and I'm sure nationwide at all the Osher Institutes as well. Um, but I can think of a handful right off the top of my head, just at the Yukon Osher Institute itself. So, who, tell us about these people. What makes them super agers? So, uh, one thing that sticks out to me is heavy involvement. They they are the people that take the most classes. We we have sessions that run all year long. We have a fall, winter, spring, summer session. There's folks that take multiple classes every session. They get involved in any volunteer opportunity they can, all different kinds, whether it's in leadership roles, uh, community engagement efforts, um, or just simply helping their fellow members along with their classes. And before we let the neuroscientists go, again, Dr. Emily Rogalski, you know, what's your opinion of the, um, the OLLI programs throughout the state? I'm sorry, across the country, actually. (laughs) Oh, sure. Uh, So we're actually very lucky at Northwestern that we have an OLLI location, too. And um, we've partnered with them, and they've been a... Uh, a wonderful group to uh, meet, and they've they have just as um, just as suggested. Um, we actually have find found some super agers among the Ali uh, group, and I personally hope that um, Ali's a lot around when um, I'm a little bit older, and so that I can participate. I think it's a, a wonderful way to continue that lifelong learning and to keep your brain active. And before we let you go, we do have a, a quick uh, listener uh, phone call. Kathy's calling from Bristol. Kathy, what's your question or comment? Hi, I missed the program that was just he was just talking about, but I did want to say that in Connecticut, anyone over 62 um, can register for any course if it's a, if there's a room at any of the public universities and community colleges and take courses. I've been taking French at CCSU for three years, um, and I think it's a great opportunity. It's inexpensive other than the registration fee and a great way to be with younger people and to stimulate your brain. And Kathy, um, do you are, are you looking to be a super ager? Oh, yeah, better believe it. 
<laughs> well, we thank you for your, uh, your question uh, and your comment, actually, Kathy. And I'll go back to Jonathan. So again, it's the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of Connecticut. So um, older adults can take lots of different courses. Yep. And I, I want to mention that specifically at the Waterbury campus. The Waterbury campus. And before we find out a little bit more about this course, I do want to thank Dr. Emily Rogowski, again, neuroscientist at the Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Center at Northwestern for joining us. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So we'll turn back to this uh, idea, you know, we all want to be super agers. And so we have these courses at um, Waterbury's uh, UConn campus. So what kind of courses and classes are you talking about? They really expand through um, multiple different academic and arts categories. There's art and art history, uh, history, political science, um, health and wellness, personal development, literature and writing, uh, visual arts. They, they expand all, all, all throughout um, whatever the interests are of the membership. There's usually something in that category or related to it. Um, some, some courses tend to be more uh, heavily sought after, such as American foreign policy is one we have going on right now. That's something that's a hot topic. Uh, everyone cares about what's going on. And so it's, it's nice to be able to offer these courses for people to learn and pursue interests that they might otherwise not be able to get the information that they are interested in. Now, you're a young guy. Um, I understand that there's a lot of um, uh, relationships at, at the campus between uh, the young students and the older adults. Tell us about that and how that's part of this whole, um, um, I guess, project. Yes, yeah, so that's something I'm really proud to have uh, helped develop over the last year. And in particular, we have a great intergenerational learning opportunity with one of the courses in our Department of Human Development and Family Studies. It's a course led by Dr. Laura D'Onofrio, and uh, it's on adulthood and aging is the name of the course. And this past year, we had 40 undergraduate students in that course partner with the Ali program in three different ways uh, to help the program and to also have an intergenerational exchange of ideas between the Ali members and the UConn students. And that was in computer literacy and technology training, uh, uh, fundraising and marketing, and curriculum development. And I, I want to say that the computer and technology training was just a pleasure to see um, see the growth happen on, on both sides of the aisle between the undergraduates and the Ali members. They it really was a booming success. The uh, the Ali members got a lot out of it. There's there's one account in particular that really touched me when I was looking through the the reviews because the the students had to fill out these assessments of um, what their experience was like. And one in particular struck me. And it was this this student, she was partnered with an Ali member whose husband is suffering from cancer. And she recalled the, the experience of being able to help this Ali member um, be, be able to work with her husband who is relatively confined to the house. And by showing her how to order things online through Amazon, and eBay, they were able to get the husband back involved in the gift in the gift buying for the holiday season, and it's it was really special to to see that written down and to just know that you know that our that the Ali program played a part in being able to uh, allow these these people to do things that 
maybe they, they used to do but have been restricted and to give them that knowledge and new tools to be able to do these things. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the brain and, and the things that we all can do to, to remain sharp as we age. In studio with me is Jonathan Draper, Interim Director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, or OLLI, at the University of Connecticut. Tell us more about um, these older adults that are um, enrolled. Um, you know, are they, so, are they more likely to be people that have multiple degrees? Um, is it more men versus women? Is it affordable to take these courses? Yeah, so you're hitting the nail on the head as far as <laughs> um, the demographic goes. There, it, it is mostly female. With Nationally, 70% of the OSHA Institute members are female, with 30% male. Um, and they range from age 50 to 100, with more than half being between 65 and 74. Uh, and they also are heavily educated for the most part, with 51% holding graduate de- degrees and 87% holding bachelor degrees. And in a recent study we did, poll that we did of our Ocean Institute in particular, the, the results aligned very similarly with the, the national averages that I just mentioned. So how does the program then reach um, older adults who don't fit in those demographics, but who could just as well benefit from this? Yeah, so that's something we'd, we'd really like to do is expand the demographic. And we, we don't, we don't want to limit ourselves to, to just the people that tend mm-hmm. to fall in those categories of you know, female, highly educated. Um, so we're really working on ways of doing that. Uh, we, we, we hold special events throughout the year to introduce a larger, a broader uh, audience base to the to the institute and to the Waterbury campus, uh, ho- hoping that that in turn uh, results in, ma- in maybe increased interest in becoming a member or take pursuing uh, lifelong learning opportunities in the future. Um, is it affordable? It's it is affordable. Uh, it runs. It's a membership driven organization, so it starts with a sixty five dollar annual membership fee, and that that allows you to take advantage of the different benefits that our members have, um, which includes taking classes. The classes have a separate fee, usually a smaller fee per course, and that ranges from $20 to 56 generally speaking, with some exceptions. And before we let you go, Jonathan, again, you, this program is out of the Waterbury campus. Any yep. plans to expand this throughout the state? Uh, not in the me- immediate future. Uh, we are looking into opportunities to um, build connections with other um, other retirement communities and hopefully be able to get them to come more often to the, to the OSHA Institute. Yeah. And, and if our listeners want to learn more, where can they go? So they can visit our website at olli.uconn.edu, or they're more than willing to call our office at 203-236-9924. Uh, we can also do email at o s h e r at u c o n n dot e d u. And we'll try to get that information out on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I've been speaking to Jonathan Draper, Interim Director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, or OLLI, at the University of Connecticut. Today we're focusing on the brain and learning about ways the brain can remain sharp as we age. Now, Jonathan, I want to thank you. Thank you. And coming up, we know the brain changes as we get older. What happens to the brain in certain environments like space? The latest research coming up after the break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, President Trump's executive order on immigration and talk of a Muslim registry during his campaign reignited memories of World War II when the country sent Japanese Americans to internment camps. On the next Where We Live, we revisit this history and learn how one particular institution opened up its campus to some young internees. That's tomorrow. Now, could we live on Mars one day? Certainly it's become fashionable to imagine life on the red planet. There's even a reality TV show competition. You've heard about this. Mars One that will choose 24 men and women out of 100 to blast off in 2025 and establish the first colony on the distant planet. Now, that sounds pretty awesome, but the whole endeavor, according to reports, to send these aspiring astronauts to Mars will cost more than $6 billion. It's okay to dream. Meanwhile, scientists have long studied the effects of space travel on real astronauts, and now a new study looks at how the brain changes during spaceflight. To tell us more, we're joined now by Dr. Vincent Kopelmans, assistant research scientist at the University of Michigan's School of Kinesiology. He's lead author of the recent study, Brain Structural Plasticity with Spaceflight. Dr. Kopelmans, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us about this study and who was studied. So, um, yeah, so our, our study indeed investigates how, um, how uh, spaceflight affects the brain. And uh, the background for the study is basically that we know that spaceflight affects, like, human behavior. Um, it's very well known that after spaceflight, astronauts have problems with gait and with balance. And that's due to uh, the different space environment. For example, there's a, there's a difference in gravity, and, and human body reacts to the gravity. So um, we, we see like a, a, a muscle, uh, muscle mass loss, and uh, there's an adaptation to the, uh, to, the, to the gravitation also like in the vestibular system. Um, but it's not very well known if there are any changes in, in the brain that also might... Uh, might explain some of these behavioral changes. And up until a few years ago, there wasn't really any like uh, like strong idea that I would be. But over over the last couple of years, there have been uh, reports that, for example, uh, show that animals do uh, show uh, brain structural changes, specifically in motor behavioral uh, or, or in brain regions that that are important for motor behavior, uh, like over spaceflight. Mm-hmm. And in addition, there have been some reports that show that um, there, are, like in humans, there. Are, uh, structural changes within the eyes. So there was more reason to believe that there are also changes within the brain or possible changes within the brain. And, um, and we basically were able to use uh, retrospective data from NASA that has been uh, collected uh, as, a, as a medical checkup pre and post flight and leverage that data to look actually like at brain changes with spaceflight. Now, I understand this was like probably the first to examine changes within the, the astronauts' brains. Why did it take so long? Um, well, I, I guess again because there, there wasn't like an initial like strong idea that there would be any uh, brain structural changes. Plus, also uh, even though we knew that there were behavioral changes, it's it has been um, there's been quite a development in the use of uh, MRI uh, MRI uh, data. Um, not only like in, in the quality of the data we receive, but also for example in the uh, possibilities to actually automatically process that data. So computer power has like like multiplied like exponentially over the last couple of years and, and we were now like able to like take advantage mm-hmm. of that of that kind of like extra computer power to uh, systematically mm-hmm. analyze these scans and look at the brain. So it was a retrospective study on shuttle crew members and international space station astronauts. What did you find? So um, we observed uh, 
uh, changes in specifically uh, uh, one tissue type that we looked at, the gray matter. So the gray matter is pretty much like the, um, the, the tissue of the brain where the actual computation takes place. So from our MRI scans, we were able to uh, quantify um, the probability of the gray matter at each, uh, at each uh, 3D pixel, so to say. So you can uh, divide the brain up into really small pixels, um, which, we, which we get from the MRI data, and, and we can look how those intensities change over time. So for each of those pixels, you can quantify how much uh, gray matter there is in that pixel. And of course, if you have uh, pre-flight um, pre measures and post-flight measures, you can look if there is an actual change. Uh, like on a group level, and that's what we did. And uh, what we noticed was that there was um, that there were significant uh, decreases in gray matter volume in certain areas of the brain, mostly uh, around like uh, the the lower uh, lower brain like regions around the uh, frontal poles and and the and the temporal poles. And in the, additionally, we also found some increases in uh, in gray matter volume. Uh, in areas that are important for uh, for motor behavior, specifically of the of the lower limbs. So the astronauts' brains were were compressed and expanded when they were in space. Um, it's not it's not necessarily compressed or uh, or uh, or expanded because that would suggest that the same amount of uh, volume would be in a smaller or larger region. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems more that uh, there is an increase in in the tissue volume or or a, a decrease in the tissue volume. And it could indeed mean several things. It could mean that there is uh, an increase in, uh, like, like where we see increases, there could be increases in uh, in dendrites, so um, the parts of the neurons that connect uh, each other. But it could also mean, uh, for example, that there are changes in fluid shift, because um, we know that with microgravity there is a, a, a cephalic fluid shift, which means that uh, bodily fluids will move up into the body, and um, that's because the lack of gravity results in, in that upward shift. So it could also be that there's an increase in volume in certain regions and um, additionally also a decrease in other regions of the brain, which could reflect that change in gray matter that we see. So your study, again, uh, looked at astronauts, but how does this um, study then, I guess, translate to um, real-world applications and you know people who aren't astronauts? What can you learn about the brain? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So. Um, one way to, to look at it is that we also have uh, Earth models in the brain uh, with microgravity. And of course, we don't have like a microgravity environment here on Earth. But what we do have is, uh, is bed rest studies, head down tilt bed rest studies. And for such studies, we uh, have subjects lying in bed for a, a long period of time, for example, uh, 70 consecutive days. And uh, they're, uh, they're uh, lying head down tilt, which means that their head is a little bit like below their feet. And that results in in uh, bodily fluids also moving towards the head. So that's one way that we uh, can mimic the effects of microgravity. And what we what we see in those studies is that there's like a large overlap in the pattern of these gray matter changes um, that we see with astronauts. So um, so we believe it's really interesting because this could also be a model for uh, let's say. Um, patients who are um, lying in bed for for longer periods of time, for example, after surgery, or think about elderly in nursing homes who are also bedridden for for very long periods of time. 
Well, that's really interesting to, to understand that there's some real-world you know, implications from this study of astronauts. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Vincent Kopelmans, Assistant Research Scientist at the University of Michigan School of Kinesiology. Uh, Dr. Kopelmans, uh, what's next in terms of your research? Where do you take this? So, um, like I explained, uh, the, um, the effects that we saw in these astronauts, these, these effects on the brain, are... are um, and mostly in, in regions that have, uh, in which we see gray matter, but um, they could also reflect um, water shifts. But to, to make sure that that's the case, we'd like better be able to uh, distinguish between actual changes in, in uh, gray matter density or, uh, or in, in water shifts, we, we also have uh, retrospective data of other MR sequences, so other types of MRI data that uh, would allow us to more specifically look at water shifts. So that's one of the things that we're looking at to to distinguish between actual changes in water and and changes in in tissue, which will give us a better answer about like what exactly is going on. And then uh, in addition, what we're currently also uh, doing is like running a uh, a prospective longitudinal study that is uh, much more controlled than this retrospective study, and that will also allow us to look at more um, more other measures. So in in that uh, longitudinal prospective study, we for example also include cognitive data uh, assessment, and uh, we have more uh, diverse uh, behavioral measures, so we'll be able to directly uh, correlate changes in motor behavior and cognitive behavior with any changes in uh, brain structure, but also brain function, because we're also collecting uh, functional MRI data. Again, Vincent Kopelmans, Assistant Research Scientist at the University of Michigan School of Kinesiology, lead author of this recent study, uh, Brain Structural Plasticity with Spaceflight. Vincent, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. You can download our podcast on any podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.